Good morning again. Our sermon text for this morning is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you could turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be some on the tables just outside the door. You should feel free to grab one of those for the service. And if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free not only to grab it for the service, but uh, you can keep it as your own, write your name in the front, take it home with you, and then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. As uh, some of you know, if you've been here, we've, uh, we've started going through the book of Galatians, and uh, we made it this morning to Galatians chapter 2, and uh, we're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's pray together before we read God's Word. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your spirit who enables us to understand your word and apply it and live in light of it and uh, to receive what we hear in it. We pray, Father, that you would be with us this morning, that you would pour out your spirit on me, that I would speak what is true, only what is true. We pray that you would pour out your spirit on all who hear, that they would hear only what is true and anything that is not true would be quickly forgotten, uh, but that we would cling uh, steadfastly to the truth of the gospel as we hear it this morning. Bless our time by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do." Unity is a very difficult thing to attain. Uh, you, you often see this, sadly, within the church, right? I mean, we could all be in here this morning uh, fighting over worship music or over worship style or over Bible translation or over theology. Disunity, right? Conflict. Now, we could also all be in here all dressed exactly the same way, raising our hands at exactly the same time, all reading the, the exact same translation, because we believe, uh, believing the exact same things, uh, because we feel that we don't have a choice. Right? We all have to conform. We all have to line up exactly with one another on every point. Uh, 
Unity, that's not unity though, right? That's conformity, um, uniformity, you might say. Uh, unity is something much more difficult, I think. You know, if you have three people in a room and the goal is unity, um, each of the three could demand their own way, disunity, uh, or one could demand his or her own way, and the other two could just fall in line, giving up their own desires, culture, humanity, whatever, to conform. Um, but in the way I'm using the word unity, that's not unity, right? That's uniformity. Um, and so there, there are really two ways at failing at unity. Uh, disunity on the one hand or uniformity on the other. Uh, conflict or conformity. Of course, one more thing needs to be said as, as we begin to think about this idea of unity. Unity, as opposed to either disunity or uniformity, as opposed to conflict or conformity, unity requires something around which people are unified. You know, whether a nation that has a national identity or a denomination that has a denominational identity or any group of in individuals that, that rally around a cause, right? Unity requires something around which people are unified. The main point of our text this morning, the text has a lot in there, but the main point of our text this morning is that unity is found in the gospel and it transcends cultural distinctions. What brings us together this morning to this room is not culture, but it's the gospel. And to try to find unity in our cultural distinctions ultimately will destroy unity and destroy the gospel as well. And so as we go this morning, as we work through this passage, the, the question to ask, a couple questions to ask. One is, you know, what are the ways that, that we, that I, that you, what are the ways that we are holding on to our culture in a way that is actually harmful to unity in the church? Or on the other hand, are there ways that we're holding on to unity that's harmful to the gospel? It actually works both ways. So are there ways in which you are holding on to, to something cultural that is harmful to unity in the church? Or are there ways that you're holding on to unity to the neglect of the gospel itself? Both could be true. Well, uh, you can see in the bulletin, on the back of the bulletin, we have an outline. There are actually six points on the outline this morning. Uh, you'll be happy to know I got that down from eight, right? So that's pretty good. Um, six propositions which I think help us to think about this in light of our text. Uh, but before I jump in, uh, let, let's, let's kind of summarize the passage, see where we've been, and, and summarize the passage. You know, the context of Galatians so far is that Paul... Paul had received his commission straight from Jesus. He received a commission to preach the gospel, the, the good news, to the Gentiles. And that good news is that you can be accepted by God because of the work of Jesus, right? Our acceptance with God is not based on your own work. It's not based on keeping the Jewish law. It's not based on your performance, your righteousness, your morality. Uh, because if it were, uh, we would all fail, Acceptance with God is based on Jesus' own righteous life, his death for our sin, his resurrection victory over sin and death and judgment. Now this was good news as Paul began to preach this, right? This was good news for, for non-Jewish people. But many of the Jewish people in Paul's day were offended and they actually began to persecute the church. In fact, Paul was among them at one point in his life. 
And so some Jewish Christians began to think through this, and they began to teach a message of, of Jesus plus, right? Jesus plus the Jewish law. In effect, they were saying, okay, Gentiles, you can, you can turn to Jesus, and you can believe in him, and you can become a Christian, uh, but you also need to become a Jew in order to be saved. So you need to believe in Jesus and the law of Moses. You need to have both. Paul, however, sees this as the undoing of the gospel. Paul would say, look, either Jesus alone saves us, and our acceptance with God is certain in him, or we have to keep the whole Jewish law, and our acceptance with God is at best uncertain, because it's based on our performance, right? which is where most of us, if we're honest, most of us live there in a kind of uncertainty, so we're never really sure if I've done enough for God to accept me. Of course, in reality, we can never fully keep the law, right? So we live constantly faced with the fact of our own failure to live up and the resulting rejection of God our Father. So we either live in just this state of anxious uncertainty or, if we're honest with ourselves, of despair because, well, I know I haven't kept the law and I know I can't keep the law. And so Paul says this whole Jesus plus gospel, this Jesus plus the law gospel, it's, it's no gospel at all, right? This is not good news. So we get to our text uh, in, in chapter 2, and in verses 1 and 2, Paul uh, goes up to Jerusalem, and in part, he goes there to make sure that the church is not divided over this issue, that the church is not divided over cultural issues, the issue of the Jewish law for Gentiles. See, Paul is worried that his work might be in vain, uh, not because Paul is unsure of the gospel himself. He, he had received it straight from Jesus, right, on the road to Damascus. He had said earlier in Galatians that if anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be eternally accursed. He seems pretty sure about the gospel that he is preaching. So he's not going up to check to see if he's gotten it right. But if the Jerusalem leaders taught something different, if they taught that you had to take on the law, that would divide the church. You'd really end up with two different camps, right? The Mosaic law keepers and the Mosaic law breakers. And it would seriously hinder the fruitfulness of Paul's ministry. Well, Paul goes up to Jerusalem, and, and we're told at that time, in verses 3 to 5, at that time, Titus, a Greek, a non-Jew, was with Paul. And Titus was not forced to take on the Jewish law through circumcision, but he was welcomed by the Jewish leaders along with Paul and Barnabas. And what this meant was that that cultural freedom was preserved, right? Titus could stay a Greek and still be a Christian. <coughs> Verses 6 through 9, those with authority in Jerusalem, they, they didn't add anything to Paul, they didn't add anything to his gospel, but on the contrary, they recognized that his gospel ministry to the Gentiles, as Gentiles, right, was a valid ministry. They only asked that Paul and his Gentile churches would remember the Jewish poor in Jerusalem as they go. What can we take from this Story, this little narrative that Paul supplies for us. Well, there are six things that I want to point out. It sounds like a lot, uh, but they kind of build on one another, and, and we can probably move through them pretty quickly. The, the first one is uh, that unity is found in the gospel message. Uh, you see this right from the start in verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. 
I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Paul wants to make sure that he and the Jerusalem leaders are on the same page. He wants to ensure the unity of the church, that the church isn't working against itself. And he does that by setting before them the gospel he proclaimed among the Gentiles, right? Paul's test for whether they had unity or not was whether uh, they were, his test for whether they were on the same page or not was the gospel. He doesn't ask them about their worship styles. He doesn't ask them about their political views. He sets before them the gospel. Christian unity is found in this. Do Do we agree that we are saved by Christ alone? Do we both agree that that my works, my obedience, my activity, my performance does not contribute to God's acceptance of me in any way? That includes, of course, penance or partaking of the sacraments or Bible reading and prayer, right? God does not accept me because I do those things, but only because of the work of Jesus on my behalf. And so as Christians, right, we can share a certain level of unity with anyone who agrees with the gospel, Right? We, we might want to ask questions, sure. I mean, you, you might want people to define terms, you know, who God is, who Jesus is, what acceptance looks like, what do people mean by what they're saying. Uh, but just be, you know, it's true that just because people sound like they agree doesn't necessarily mean they agree. So you probe a little bit, you ask questions, I get that. But once it's, once it's determined that there's basic agreement on God and the gospel, we have established the basis for Christian unity. We may disagree on other things, and that's okay. Uh, We may think that people are in error in other ways, and that's okay too. But the basis for unity has been established in the gospel, even if we disagree on other things. Now, remember I said earlier that, that unity requires something around which people are unified, right? We are unified around the gospel. And I would contend uh, that there's actually no lasting unity uh, in the midst of diversity diversity outside of the gospel, right? Because it will always lead either to conformity, asking other people to just conform to you and become like you, or to conflict, right? Either you demand everyone becomes like you, or your unity will eventually erode, right? Our unity needs to be grounded on something, And it needs to be grounded on something, uh, not grounded on something in this world, like ethnicity or economics or politics or style. Our unity needs to be grounded on something that comes from outside this world, the message of the gospel, right? The good news of what Christ has done in the cross. That's what brings us together. So unity is found in the gospel message. Again, that's why we're here this morning. Which also means then that, two, gospel unity transcends cultures. Um, Verse 3 says, uh, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, this statement may seem kind of offhand, nonchalant, right, no big deal, but it's actually pretty radical. In fact, this is the whole debate right here. Titus was not forced to be circumcised. That's it. That's everything. Uh, 
does one need to take on the Jewish law in order to be a Christian? No, Titus was not forced to be circumcised, right? Does one need to conform to a certain culture in order to be a Christian? No, Titus was not forced to be circumcised. Uh, does one need to live up to a certain cultural standard in order to be a Christian? No, Titus was not forced to be circumcised. Gospel unity transcends culture, right? If, if uh, you believe in the Lord Jesus, it doesn't matter what culture you're a part of. Even Jewish culture, which in many ways the Jewish law, right? It was God-given, but God says, no, it doesn't, you don't need to conform even to that. <coughs> believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And, and maybe it's just obvious when we put it like that. Maybe that's, maybe that's easy. But from, from this verse, uh, one doesn't have to become culturally Jewish in order to be a Christian. Okay, we, we get that. Um, which, of course, means that one doesn't have to become culturally anything else either. You don't have to become culturally English or American or Western or African or Middle Eastern or whatever, right, in order to be a Christian. We know that. I think we know that, at least in our minds. The, the challenge comes, the difficulty comes, when we begin to investigate what cultural beliefs we have associated with Christianity, Right? What cultural niceness or cultural rules? You know, the Bible says, love your neighbor and be holy as God is holy. Those are very big and very broad and kind of all-encompassing. They need to be fleshed out in a particular time and place, and that's good. They do need to be fleshed out in a particular time and place. When we flesh that out in our culture, how might we then impose our cultural applications on other people? Right? So we flesh it out, here's what I think this looks like in this time and this place, but then I begin to impose that on other people in other times and other places. And so we might define holiness by, by what we wear, or what not to drink, or what games not to play, or what movies not to watch, what music not to listen to. I'm not de denying sort of the universal validity of God's law, right? I'm not, I, I am saying, though, that we often add to that we add to God's law our own culture-bound rules. And so, uh, you know, don't play card games is a culture-bound rule. Or, or don't play games with dice. Now, we kind of laugh at that today. Don't play games at dice, with dice. That's funny. But uh, once upon a time, in uh, certain Christian circles in our country, good Christians didn't play games with dice. Because it was considered kind of playing with providence. Putting God to the test. And so you didn't do it if you were a Christian. Um, that, that, that's, that's a culture-bound rule right, that we impose on one another. Now, surely there are moral norms we're called to live out in Christ. In fact, the next section in Galatians, the very next section, we're going to see Peter, uh, Paul rebuking Peter for not living in step with the truth of the gospel. Right? He's going to rebuke him. For the way he's living, he's going to say it's, it's not correct. But what we're talking about here is, is cultural norms that go beyond what Scripture says, or the clear and necessary, this is where it gets tricky, isn't it? The clear and necessary implications of what Scripture says. So the question is, what, what culture-bound rules have you begun to think are necessary for every Christian everywhere? What are the sort of the nice and proper attitudes that your Christian upbringing has taught you, and how have you added that onto belief in Christ as an expectation for other Christians? In order to have unity in the gospel, we actually don't need cultural unity. We can be different. Right? 
Uh, in fact, the, the, the thing around which we gather is not cultural similarity, but the good news of Jesus. In fact, cultural diversity within the church is actually a good thing because it demonstrates where our true unity lies by contrast. What brings us together is not that we're all, we all like the same music. It's not that we all shop at the same stores. It's not that we all have the same accent, right? What brings us together is Jesus. That, that, that doesn't mean, of course, that culture is always neutral, right? Of course not, right? Culture as well must be judged by the scriptures. But the problem is when we make culture our standard instead of scripture, and we begin to judge people by that. True gospel unity actually transcends culture because it's unity in the gospel, not in any particular culture, not in any style, not in any particular uh, party or political party. Right? It's unity in the gospel. So unity is found in the gospel message. It, it, it transcends culture. Third, cultural conformity actually destroys unity. Right? The demand for people to become like me will destroy unity in the gospel. Uh, this is obvious from what we've already said. On the one hand, uniformity is not unity. Right? They're different things. Right? The demand to conform is not unity. Um, yes, unity is around something, but Christian unity is around the gospel, right? not all being the same. But here's what the demand for conformity does, right? The demand for conformity, it, it, you, you draw lines and you make slaves out of people. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. Now, Paul starts like three sentences in these two verses, and he doesn't finish any of them, which makes it difficult to read, right? Um, <clears throat> but... Uh, there are some, there were some who believed that taking on the Jewish law and Jewish culture was necessary in that day. And so they drew lines in and out beyond that of the gospel. You were in if you took on the Jewish law. You were out if you rejected the Jewish law. And drawing those lines makes one then a slave to Jewish law and culture. And it destroys gospel unity. So, you know, one might believe the gospel in that day. But, but if you're not circumcised, well, you're out. You're not in. You've got, to, you've got to fulfill this rule. Uh, one might believe the gospel, but if you don't have the right worship music, you're out. One might believe the gospel, but if you don't vote the right way, you're out. Uh, one might believe the gospel, but if you don't have the right stance on alcohol, you're out. See, the effect is to bind people's consciences, to make them slaves to certain cultural rules, and to destroy cross-cultural, Christ-centered, gospel unity, right? You're destroying unity because you're excluding people. Even though they're Christians, you begin to cut people off because they don't fill up, they don't live up to your rules. Cultural conformity, this demand for cultural conformity de destroys unity. It demands that people become like you and excludes those who differ, not for the gospel's sake, but for culture's sake. See, unity, real unity, is found in the gospel message, and that gospel unity transcends culture. And the demand for cultural conformity, that demand for you to become like me, will destroy our, the unity we have in the gospel. You're drawing lines. You're excluding people. Not only, though, does the demand for cultural conformity destroy unity, it actually will destroy the gospel itself. That's the next point. If I demand for you to become like me, 
If I say, well, if you want to be Christian, you need to be like me, right? You, you need to, whatever, wear a suit jacket and, and, and be like me. I, I not only destroy unity, I'm destroying the gospel. Paul says in verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. To those who wanted to bind Titus and the other Greeks to the Jewish law, Paul did not give in, even for a moment, he says. Why not, Paul? I mean, what's the big deal after all? I mean, it's, it's just circumcision. Just let them be circumcised and move on. No, Paul says, it's the truth of the gospel that he wants to preserve. See, if we let people think that in order to become a Christian, you also have to perform, you also have to live up to some given standard, whether that is the standard God gave in the Old Testament Jewish law or worse, some man-made standard today. Either way, if we let people think that to become a Christian, they must conform to some culturally defined standard, we have lost the truth of the gospel. Because the truth of the gospel is that our acceptance with God is, is founded in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Jesus has done all that was necessary to satisfy the Father. He perfectly fulfilled the, the law in all of its demands. He obeyed the law and he took on the law's penalty for our breaking the law. We don't have to fulfill the Old Testament law or any other law in order to be accepted by God the Father because Jesus obeyed in our place. In order to preserve the truth of the gospel, we must disabuse people of the notion that they must conform in order to be accepted, which is actually not that easy. <laughs> because we tend, when we join any group, we tend to just think, oh, I've got to become like them in order to be accepted in this room. If we give people the impression that they must dress in a certain way to be a part of our church, we have not preserved the truth of the gospel. If we give people the impression that they must have a college education to be a part of our church, we have not preserved the truth of the gospel. If we give people the impression that they must choose a certain way of schooling their kids in order to be a part of our church, whether that's public school or Christian school or homeschool or whatever, if we give people the impression that they must do it one way in order to be a Christian, we have not preserved the truth of the gospel. If we give people the impression they must vote a certain way to be a part of our church, we have not preserved the truth of the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that as individuals we, we shouldn't talk about these things. In fact, I hope we will talk about these things. I hope we will wrestle with these things and much more together because they're important things. But we must not give people the impression that you better come to the right conclusions or else. See, when we do that, we have not preserved the truth of the gospel. You see, the demand for cultural conformity, the demand for people to become like me in order to be a Christian, destroys the message of the gospel, that our acceptance is found in Christ and in him alone. Okay, so, so one, unity is found in the gospel message. That gospel unity transcends culture. It's bigger than culture. Cultural conformity, that demand for cultural conformity destroys gospel unity and it destroys the gospel itself because it tells people their acceptance hinges on their conforming, on their performance rather than on Jesus. So fifth, gospel transcending unity, culture, sorry, culture transcending unity is empowered by the gospel. Okay, talk of unity is really easy. I mean, I could stand up here all day and talk about this, right? Just ask my wife, right? I could talk about unity all, it's easy. 
putting it into practice, that is much more difficult. Why do we end up in conflict? Why do we demand conformity? Why do I insist that you must become like me to be accepted or to be acceptable? Why do we do that? The, the ultimate answer must be that I find my identity in these cultural practices. I find my righteousness, my acceptability in these cultural practices. I think I'm a pretty decent guy. And if you want to be a decent guy, you need to become like me. right? If I am acceptable because I live like this, then, then you can only be acceptable if you live like this too. Right? It affirms us. When, when you become like me, that's affirming to me. So if I find my righteousness in these cultural things, right, then I need you. I need you to conform. If I don't find my righteousness in these things, I, I wouldn't need you to take them on as well. It wouldn't matter. See, why do we insist that, that every church share our preferred style of whatever? Because we think it's the right style. Because we feel that, that when we have the, the right music or the right clothes or the right whatever, we, we feel righteous. I mean, now, again, we can argue about worship music, and there may be good reasons to do one thing over another, right? That, that's not what I'm talking about. We can argue, and we can discuss, and we can disagree, and that's okay. But our demand for uniformity, right, when it's no longer okay for you to disagree with me, and when I say, well, if you do that, you're not a Christian, our demand for uniformity comes from finding our righteousness in those cultural beliefs and practices, and not in Jesus. If I know that my righteousness is in Christ, I don't have to attach a righteous meter to everything I do. I don't have to measure how righteous is this thing, how righteous is that thing. If my righteousness is in Christ and not in worship styles or in political parties, right, then I can see you as righteous in Christ, even if your worship style or your political persuasions differ from mine. See how that works, right? It's, it's okay to disagree. It's okay to think another person is wrong. But that doesn't determine their status before the Father. That doesn't determine whether they are righteous in Christ or not. If I think my righteousness is in driving electric cars to save the planet, then I'm going to struggle, right, to have unity with Christians who drive gas guzzlers. Right? I'm going to look down on them. I'm going to judge them. Because how dare they? And they're not real Christians, or they would try to save the planet, or whatever. Right? If I rest in the righteousness of Christ, I might disagree with someone else about the propriety of going green, but it's not going to have the same kind of teeth. The more I am resting in Christ, the more I will be willing to find common cause with Christians who differ from me in other ways. It's okay that they differ. Unity is found in the gospel message. It transcends cultural differences. In fact, the demand for conformity destroys unity, destroys the gospel. So this cultural transcending unity, though, where does it come from? It's actually empowered by the gospel. Once I know who I am in Christ, I'll be free to let others be who they are in Christ. Sixth, I think finally, I think this is the last point. Culture transcending unity is demonstrated in cross-cultural acts of love. The, the last verse of our section, verse 10, says this, only, Paul says, only they asked me to remember, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. 
See, when, when the Jerusalem leaders, uh, they, they acknowledged Paul's ministry, they acknowledged it as valid, his ministry to Gentiles, as Gentiles, this is valid. They, they asked him to do one thing. They asked him to remember the poor. And when they did that, they actually, they, 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 didn't, they probably didn't mean just the generic poor. That's probably not what they meant. Um, that, that may be true, right? But, but more likely what they're saying is the poor Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem. Because at the time, the, the Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem were a lot more impoverished than many of the Gentiles living in other, Gentile Christians living in other places. And actually, we see this repeatedly. Uh, the, you know, the point was Paul and his Gentile churches should care for poor Jewish Christians. And you see it repeatedly in Paul's other, other letters where he is taking a collection. He is taking a collection from other churches for the Jerusalem church. And so often at the end of his letters, he'll talk about the collection and who's going to come and get the money and when they need to have the money ready and so on and so forth. Why is he always talking about this collection? He's doing what he was asked to do. He's remembering the poor in Jerusalem. And he's asking the Gentile churches to give for the sake of their Jewish Christian brothers. So what this means is that, that at least here, culture transcending gospel unity, right, was to be demonstrated in this cross-cultural act of love. Which should, on the one hand, cause us to think, okay, uh, how am I actively loving, or how can I actively love, how can we actively love Christians who differ from us? Right? It's easy to love people who are just like you, right? I mean, that's easy. It's easy to care, well, it's easy to care for your family. You may disagree a lot, but it's easy to care for your family, right? It's easy to care for people who are like you. It's much harder for, for people who are, who are very different from you, right? So how can we do that, right? How can we love people who are different from us, particularly Christians, right, who are different from us? How can we love them and show God's grace to them? Of course, this also points us back to the gospel. Think about the love of Christ in light of everything that we've been talking about. Rather than demand that we become like him, Christ became like us. He crossed the greatest cultural barrier known to man, right? God became man. The divine took on human skin. The holy one took on human sin. The preeminent act of love, the, 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 the model act of love, is a model of love that crosses barriers, crosses cultures. It was not a love that says, you first become like me and then I'll accept you. But a love that actually said, I will become like you. Jesus became like us that we might be accepted by the Father. We find our unity with the Father, not in our becoming like Him, but in Him becoming like us in Christ. Now, now, it's true, uh, there's a difference here. There is a difference here. It's an important one. Uh, that because then, God begins to work in us in order to conform us to His character, right? <laughs> there is that conforming work that God does. He conforms us to His character through Christ. But that's not a culturally conditioned character, right? Um, do, do you see the, the difference there? Um, we are to be conformed, we are to be conformed to something. It is true. 
But it's, 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 it's not your culture or my culture or somebody else's culture that we're being conformed to. It's the image of God seen in the person of Jesus. Unity is found in the gospel message. It, it's a unity that transcends culture. And, and, and the demand for conformity actually ends up destroying unity and the gospel. But this culture transcending unity is empowered by the gospel as we understand our acceptance in Christ. And it's also demonstrated in these cross-cultural acts of love. Um, we, we will know that we are, are, are with one another, right? That we are one with one another when we live out the character of Christ, when we live in self-denying Christ-like love for people who differ from us. We can only accept others in this way when we first know His acceptance of us, that God became like us, that we might be accepted by Him. And now we can show others the same kind of, of barrier-crossing love, that in doing so we might preserve the truth of the gospel and show Christ to those around us in the way we live. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, uh, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for our acceptance in Jesus. Uh, we thank you that you have accepted us regardless of, of what culture we came from, what background we have, because you have accepted us not based on what we do, but on what Christ has done. Father, I pray that you would help us to rejoice in that, to rest in that, to revel in that, and to show that same kind of welcome to others that you have shown to us in a way that, that preserves the truth of the gospel and shines it forth for all to see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.